and welcome to the Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast that brings together some of the world's most innovative thinkers to weigh in on matters concerning the future of ourselves and our planet. And to discuss that future, not as something to be predicted, but to be created. In each episode, your hosts, Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Zhao, and moderator Nora Cesar will converse with guests from numerous disciplines to help us navigate a new worldview which derives its wisdom from synthesis of ancient and modern, East and West, science and spirituality. From these seemingly divergent perspectives, we will demonstrate how we can create a new narrative and usher in the dawn of a better era. So, welcome everyone. Today's episode will be focusing on Judaism. Our guest is Rabbi Aaron Raskin. Please allow me to introduce him. Rabbi Aaron Raskin is a dynamic and charismatic leader. He hails from a long line of prominent rabbis. His grandfather, Rabbi Jacob J. Hecht, served as the official translator of the Lubavitcher Rabbi. Rabbi Raskin came to Brooklyn Heights in September of 1988 to co-found Congregation B'nai Avram and serve as its spiritual leader. Rabbi Raskin speaks on many topics, such as the Zodiac and the energy of the month, Messiah and redemption, women's mitzvahs, contributions to the Torah and Noahide laws. He reveals the hidden meaning of Hebrew letters, Hebrew and Jewish names, Parsha, Haftarah, Jewish holidays, and many more. He has written numerous books on these amazingly inspiring topics. And please allow me to introduce our hosts, Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Tsao. Irvin Laszlo, two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, world-renowned philosopher and system scientist, author of over 106 books, founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and the Club of Budapest. Recipient of multiple honors and awards like the Goye Peace Prize, the Assisi Mandir of Peace Prize, and the Luxembourg Peace Prize. And Frederick Tsao, business leader, futurist, practitioner of Eastern wisdom and Western science. Author, chairman of the Family Business Network's Council of Wisdom and founder of the prestigious Octave Institute, fusing ancient wisdom and quantum science as a platform for people to achieve a purposeful life, mindfully lived at new levels of consciousness and freedom. So let me start by inviting one of our co-hosts to share the opening remarks. Irwin, please come and join us. Well, it's particularly a great honor and pleasure to be here discussing this topic of Judaism in today's world and discussing it with such an eminent person as Rabbi Reskin. I feel particularly touched because my background comes from here. I from a family that traces its, its, its at least on my father's side, traces its origins to Rabbi Lube in Romania, whom I understand is, uh, has been a, a very prolific rabbi in terms of not only writing many things, but also giving birth to many lineages including lineages of Karl Mannheim, including Karl Mannheim, and a physicist by the name of Albert Einstein. So I've, I, when I found this out, which was not long ago, 
I've been that naturally very pleased, but it raises an issue. It raises a question, which I can frame just from my own experience. I grew up in Hungary, in Budapest. I was not in, in discriminated as being of Jewish origin until the Nazi invasion in 1947, in, in 1944, rather, and at which time I was obliged to wear a yellow star. And we were almost deported by, I don't want to get into details, into Auschwitz, and there's a very, very little that my family survived. Then I became aware of this origin, okay? But I was always a musician. I was a musician and, and a kind of a spiritual person uh, in, the, in the sense of, of looking at for spiritual values in, in the world. Uh, not necessarily a partisan of any group, I felt myself belonging to a group which survived thousands of years and it maintained its traditions all this time. This is a group of only uh, some million people, some, some several millions of people, but not billions like Frederick Chao's group, China, which is the Chinese tradition, which is the largest single group of tradition on earth running into billions. How, how is that? How is that? How can we belong to a group and also belong to humanity? This is the question that I'd like to raise. My conviction is that, not the, it's not an answer to this question, but in, my, in, in parallel to that, as a background to this, my conviction is that we need oneness and cohesion in the world above all. But we also need identity in the world. Can we bring, bring our identity beyond our individual identity into a group identity, into a cultural identity? How can that cultural identity cohere with the rest of the groups and cultures in, in, on, on the planet today? It's a big question. Judaism survived today by being very cohesive internally, distinguishing itself, differentiating itself, not always willingly, but sometimes was forced, forced like that. But in any case, it was always differentiated from the rest of the people around it, the rest of the cultures. And it survived, okay? It had tremendous traumas, the, the pogroms and the discriminations, uh, the pursuits that went on even throughout the 20th century. But it is here today, and it's giving birth to great intellectuals and minds and great artists. And I'm proud to be part of that. But I'm not part of any small group of any distinguishing uh, distinguished group that distinguished from the others. I feel myself a human being, first of first and foremost, even more uh, a, a living being on Earth that owes its allegiance to all life on Earth. So how do we resolve this? How do we survive with our own traditions, sometimes very great and noble traditions like we are talking about it today? and yet survive as a member of a larger community. Not an exclusive member, but an inclusive member. I would love to hear Rabbi Raskan's thoughts on that. I think that's a great problem, and it's a thing that where Judaism could show the way today. Thank you for your attention. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Ervin. I find it actually very amazing how we are going through these shows with different religions. I'm just telling this to Rabbi Raskin. So we've done Christianity, Buddhism, and now Judaism. And 
the fact that you are able to connect to it not just on a personal level because you said that your parents practice christianity so that's what you grew up with but you also has you also have some background in judaism but you feel most connected to buddhism it's just it's the same thing that we are talking about here um how we can connect all these things and still we are just human beings so i would like to uh, ask rabbi raskin to join the conversation and please reflect on what Irwin said. And also, can you share us a little bit more about the roots of Judaism and how do you see its relevance in today's challenging times? So thank you, Nora, for that beautiful introduction. And um, it's an honor to be sitting with such beautiful people, intellectuals and people of, of tremendous faith and, and love. And I'd like to begin by saying that there's a Jewish belief and, and philosophy that all humankind were created in the image of God. To use the Hebrew words, in the image of God, man was created. And the fact that all humankind, from all nations, from all races, stem from one human being means that Essentially, we are all connected and all united. There's a famous story that I like to share that in 1797, um, one of my great mentors and teachers known as Rabbi Shnezam of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe was in prison in Tsarist Russia, and the, the captain of the prison, not Jewish, realized that the Alter Rebbe was not a simple prisoner, but rather a man of tremendous intellect and holiness. He walked over to the Alter Rebbe and said to him, I have a question in the Bible. May I share it with you? And he said, of course, go ahead, watch your question. He said like this, he said, you know that we find that after Adam was in paradise and they ate from the forbidden fruit, God turns to Adam and he says, Adam, Ayeka, where are you? So, the question of the captain of the prison was, doesn't God know everything? Why does it mean God turns to Adam after he sinned by eating the forbidden fruit? Ayaka, where are you? Rabbi Shnezam Nabliadi, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, responded that the logician of the Torah, the classic, the classic commentator by the name of Rashi, answers that question. And that Rashi was saying that... God didn't want to scare Adam after the sin. He didn't want to frighten him. So he like played a game with him. Adam, hide and seek. Where are you? So Adam would come out and say, look, God, I made a mistake. I violated your commandments. I'm sorry. He wanted Adam to, to, to respond and to do tshuva, to repent for his sin. And that's why he said, Ayaka, where are you? But he didn't know where he was. And... The captain says, yes, I know that answer. Now, the captain wasn't Jewish, but he was very familiar with the Jewish commentaries on the Bible. And he turned to the Alter Rebbe and said, Rabbi, can you give me another perspective? And the Alter Rebbe said like this. He said, do you believe that the Torah, the Bible, talks to all humankind? He says, yes. Do you believe that the, the Torah has a message for every individual? He says, yes. If that is the case, let me share with you my perspective. He said that Adam represents all humankind. Because the word Adam 
etymologically speaking, is Adamel Le'elyoin, which means made in the image of God. So that is the meaning of Adam. So all of us, it's all humankind. And every day, every day, God turns to us and he says, Ayeka, where are you? What have you accomplished? Your soul has come down to the world to bring light and joy and warmth to the world. Are you fulfilling your purpose? Are you fulfilling your mission? Each one of us was granted unique talents. Are we using our talents to make the world a more beautiful place? So this is the beginning, the opening story of the Torah, of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. But it's not only a story about one individual. It's really the story of all humankind. And this is a story that we need to use and challenge ourselves with every day when we get up and ask ourselves, Ayeka, where are you? So this is my, my first thought that I'd like to share. And that is that really we come from one place. We all stand from one human being and we have the same mission. All of us need to use our talents. We need to use our resources to make the world a kinder place, a more beautiful place, or a more tolerant place and a more united place. The fact that we're different, different colors, different backgrounds, different beliefs, that alone should not be something to tear us apart, but on the contrary, to complement one the other. I would like to share an additional thought. It's a, uh, it's a very Kabbalistic thought, a very deep thought, but it's a very profound thought. It says in the beginning of the Bible, Bereshit bara lukim, in the beginning, God created the world. The Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael, Baal Shem Tov, the founder of, of Hasidism of the 17th century, he says that in truth, God did not only create the world once, but every moment God recreates the world, ex nihilo, nothing into something. And there's a lot of logic behind it because if you have physical matter that already exists, you can reshape it. But if you need to bring something from nothing into something, then it has to be a constant recreation. The simple example that is given is that of a light bulb. For a light bulb to give off light, it needs a constant current of electricity. The moment the current stops, there's no more light. The same is true. God needs to give that current into the world every moment because he created the world ex nihilo, nothing into something. This is the general concept in, in Kabbalah. Now, the question is asked. It's logical that God needs to recreate the world every moment anew. But God could have created the world, being that he is God, in a manner that it runs at autopilot, that he put on the world on this track and he lets the world go. Why must we say or believe that God recreates the world every moment anew? So the answer that, that my teacher, my mentor, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says is the following, and it's a beautiful, beautiful insight. He says like this, the fact that God recreates the world every moment anew is in essence God telling us that he loves us, he cares about us, and he is constantly thinking about us. You know, as parents, we send our kids to school, let's say nine o'clock in the morning, they come back five o'clock in the afternoon, and from nine to five, we don't have to think about them. We know they're in good hands. The fact that God creates the world every moment is telling us that in essence, every moment, he is thinking about each and every one of us. 
he is concerned about our welfare. He wants us to succeed, and he's watching over us. So it's a, it's a concept of endearment. It's practical Kabbalah. In other words, not only a philosophical idea, but it, it's really very practical in the sense, knowing that there's someone, an eye that sees and an ear that hears, that is always watching over us, and really cares about us like a father to a child. And, and the Baal Shem Tov says that the love that God has for us is more than a father or a mother for a child because the love that a mother or father has for a child is limited. God is infinite. So his love for us is an infinite love. And only that, that should give us additional support and encouragement to go out into the world and really make a difference and make a change. Finally, <clears throat> In a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating the Jewish holiday called Shavuot. That was the day that God came down on Sinai and gave us the Ten Commandments. But Maimonides, one of the greatest Jewish philosophers and, and teachers and theologians, says that not only did God give the Torah, the Ten Commandments on Sinai, but he also gave the seven Noahide laws. And these are the laws for all nations of the world. Regardless of what religion you follow or philosophy you follow, these seven universal laws are for all humankind. And just to run through them quickly, number one is not to bow down to idols, not to curse God, not to kill, not to steal, um, not to have any legitimate sexual acts, and to establish courts of law. These, these are all, you know, all seven universal laws by the fact that all nations of the world will keep to these things, to make sure not to kill and steal, etc., etc., and to respect one the other. That is the way we'll keep the world at peace <clears throat> and in a state of sanity. In addition to that, the seven Noachide laws is also the idea of charity. And that is, according to the Bible, according to Judaism, one is actually obligated to give 10% of their earnings to tzedakah, to charity, to a school, to a hospital, to an orphanage, to people who are less, less fortunate than them. And the philosophy is not only that you're giving away your money to somebody else, but to begin with, it wasn't yours. God gave you that 10% or even 20% that when the poor man comes to you to ask for the money, you're giving the money to them. That's why the word tzedakah in Hebrew is not the translation for charity, but rather tzedakah means the right thing. It's tzedek. You're doing the right thing. You're giving the poor man his money. But he gave it to you. God gave it to you on loan to hold until he came to you. One final thought. In two days from now, we're celebrating the holiday of Passover, the second Passover, called Pesach Sheni. <clears throat> what happened was in the desert, there were those Jews that were impure. They couldn't bring the Paschal lamb. They went to Moses and said, Moses, um, we missed out the first Passover. We want to do it again. So Moses says, let me talk to God. He turns to God and says, what should we do? God says, fine, we'll give them another opportunity on the 14th day of the month of Eeyore, one month after the first Passover, to bring the Paschal Lamb. Rabbi, Shnei, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak in the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe said, from here we learn the lesson is never too late. We can always make things right. And this is part of a, a bigger commandment, a bigger mitzvah, which is the mitzvah of tshuva, a very powerful mitzvah, and that is <clears throat> the mitzvah of repentance. But in Judaism, the mitzvah of repentance is not only that from now on I'm going to be good, from now on I'm going to be different, but it's the one thing in the world that is counterintuitive and contrary to time. Time is always moving forward. We can never go back in time. When it comes to repentance, which is called tshuva, 
to return according to Kabbalah and according to the Talmud, we have the power to retroactively fix the past. Not only do we fix the past, but it says more than that. If you return in a way of love and joy, not because you're forced to return and change your ways, then those mistakes that you caused in the past become credits to you, becomes a mitzvah, a good deed, and you get reward for that. So on a very practical note, all of us know that from our mistakes, we learn what not to do. And if we use our mistakes in a positive way, it makes us more productive today. So these are a few Jewish ideas, a few principles that I wanted to share with you today. And I believe most of them are universal. And regardless of what religion or background we come from, most of these things we could agree upon. And I tell my people, you know, there's a Jewish expression, two Jews, three opinions. Not only, you know, not only about different religions. There's a famous story of a Jew who was on a desert island. He had two synagogues. And they asked him, what do you need two synagogues for? He says, well, I built these two synagogues because one I go to and one I'll never step into. So the idea of, of having different beliefs is not something which should divide us. On the contrary, I tell all my congregants, we have to agree to disagree. It's okay. It's okay to think differently than somebody else. At the end of the day, you can still love your spouse, even though you think different. You can love your children, even though you think different. If we looked at our neighboring countries and neighboring re religions as, as our brothers and sisters, fine. You like wearing a purple hat, I like a green hat, not a problem. We could share and we could love and respect. And that's the most important thing. I think the bottom line is respecting one the other and inspiring one the other and teaching and learning from one the other. At the end of the day, live and let live. And most importantly, to realize that each one of us is truly a light and an inspiration to the whole world and that we have the power to change the world. I want to conclude with one last thought. Sorry, I know I'm talking too much. One last thought is that if you look into the Bible, it says when God created the world, when it came to the animals, he created entire families, entire pods, entire species. When it came to humankind, he created one person, Adam. Adam was a hermaphrodite, a man and a woman together. And even that was one. And then God split them in two. And from that came children. And there's a famous question. Why did God create only one human being? Why not create a family? Just like he created a family when it came to the sharks or the dolphins or the mammals or the birds. And the answer is to teach us that one human being can change the entire world. And this is the thought I'd like to leave you with. Maimonides tells us that the per a person has to look at the world that the world is on a scale of 50% good, 50% bad. One good deed can turn the scale to salvation and bring blessing for the whole world. And the truth is the opposite as well. One bad deed, one negative thing we do could bring destruction to the whole world. And we, every day, are standing on that scale. We're standing on that threshold between bringing the whole world to salvation or God forbid the opposite. So I hope I... I answered some of your questions. I hope I was able to reveal some ideas about Judaism. And uh, hopefully we can have a, a beautiful, meaningful conversation. 
Thank you. Thank you. I can see Fred is eager to comment. So Fred, please. Uh, yes. Uh, first, a little backdrop of myself. I grew up in a British colony. I'm educated up to my university by Christian school and learning about the Bible. But I'm Chinese and I have Chinese tradition of Confucianism, Taoism and Buddhism. And so um, I've been making reconciliation of uh, the different traditions uh, since I was young. Then uh, in university, I'm a science and technology person and I'm an engineer. So I need to make reconciliation with science and technology. And that was Newtonian science. Then I realized that science has moved on into a much more bigger science of quantum science. So I make reconciliation with that. And um, I realize uh, between the invisible and the visible world of duality, that we are actually one in nature. And a human being is not like any other animal. Other animals are run by instinct. But human being is made in the image of God. That is all creative. Look at today, we can make dirt into human android. A human representative with consciousness in the dualistic world. And, and I realized God has created an opportunity for us by creating challenges for humanity to unite us, the challenge of sustainability. And that, and when I study the various tradition, I found out they all have the same worldview of what is spiritual and what is dual, and that we need to live a spiritual life and that we need to create in, a, in the image of God doing God's work and be all creative to create the process of humanity, which is the I to we, that we can live like nature, diversity in harmony, and that we're made with a particular role, with a particular purpose, just like nature. The human being can learn from nature and the human being must find harmony and unity. It is a process. If you really look at it, whether it is a family, uh, a business, a nation, or any collectivity, that we are, although seemingly trying to do a work, but the real process is the I to we process. And humanity is blessed now with globalization and the challenge of sustainability. So when I graduated from university, I took over the family business and I am in the warrior of the market economy. And I see the world destroying family business. I'm gonna come from a family business of 120 years old and the social contract, the market economy that lacks um, morality, that lacks ethics, have brought us to what we are into an unsustainable world. So I realized I am making the role throughout my life of preparation by God to do one work, to change the market economy, to have ethics and morality 
so we can resolve the sustainability challenge. But I also realize what divide us is share experience and languages. And the languages lacks the commonality for us to communicate that share experience as humanity so that we can now have commonality and common language to work with for this harmony, diversification, for the purpose of why we have here a role to play in this era, into this situation that we're at today. And that we needed to find a common language and commonality of this worldview of spirituality and the worldview of material reality and put them into work so that we can do that. Now in the Chinese culture, philanthropy is needed. Why is philanthropy needed? Because we are made an image of God. We are one, we are love itself, but we get lost. And we need the guidance of God to bring us so that the practice of philanthropy, the act of love and giving is so necessary to rediscover our true nature through the expression of material world and awakening to our spiritual nature. And this is totally aligned, as I hear Rabbi talked about this Jewish tradition. It is totally consistent to our Chinese tradition and quantum science. And I feel that, you know, in the era of the new well-being era, that for us to find unity and well-being and that we can find wellness in the whole system because we cannot be well until all is well. Our family, humanity, or earth has to be well for us to really be well. And that philanthropy, as Rabbi said, the practice, what he talked about the rules in Buddhist is the five percepts and the 10 kindness that we have to practice. So we found so much commonality, but we needed to bridge between religion uh, because the language is different. The worldview is the same. And then we are divided because of the language, because of we do not interpret the same worldview into the common language, that we need a common language to find commonality to fight our common challenge of sustainability. So we needed to have a cross index of languages. So between religion, between race, between all can dissolve into this humanity that Rabbi is talking about, to our true nature and going be, be, beyond our tradition into this new era with the same harmon human understanding of who we are and what are we here to do? And that this challenge will unite us in finding solution and commonality to unite us as one in the material world. And so hence, this dialogue, this podcast, is to find more and more commonality so humanity can understand our true nature as humanity, that that beyond history, beyond culture, beyond language, we can unite our true humanity in creating the I to we and awaken 
how we can solve this sustainability challenge in changing the marketplace, in changing business, in changing how we approach life, which is all is part of life, the whole universe is life. Earth is part of our life. So that our love can express, so we can therefore see our true nature, that we are made as one, to be united, to be one in humanity, despite the language, history, and tradition that we come from. So I am uh, very pleased to be here to have this dialogue. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Irvin, would you like to add something to that? It's Yes. It's a wonderfully deep and good conversation. I'm particularly interested in Rabbi's views about identity. Is there such an, an belongingness? He said, we are made, all men are made by the image of God. Then we are all one family. Then is, there is no real sense about differentiation. Then we are really all human beings made the same way. I can accept that. And I believe in that. It raises a question about the formulation. The formulation that we hear from Rabbi, and we hear typically from the Orthodox traditions of all religions, is the world as but human beings and the world have been made, made by. So it presupposes an entity, an intelligence, higher than the world, that is beyond the world, okay? But made, we are made by a higher intelligence. Is that acceptable to science? On the first, on the first sight, it is not. On a deeper look, it is. Why? Because this hill raises the problem, what is known as evolutionism versus creationism. The traditional way of looking at it, the orthodox way, is creationist. God made the world. The evolutionists say nobody made the world, the world made itself. Now, there is a resolution to this. I've written about that, I can't go into detail, but I'm just to say it very briefly. The God did make human beings, but not directly. God made the world, the cosmos, the universe, the way it is, because this is not an, a happenstance universe, not a, not a random universe. It's not, has not been created by chance, could not have been created purely by chance. This, the statistics are against all, all probabilities of that. There is something that created the world, the universe as it is. And that universe is such that living beings can arise in it. Not only can, but they do arise almost as a consequence of what this universe is. The first atoms con uh, co cohere together into molecules, molecules into cells and into organs, into organisms, into ecologies, into planetary consciousnesses ecologies on, on, on the global level. The world is such that it creates itself at all the time. It creates coherence. So we would say, yes, indeed, the human being was made by God, by God creating the cosmos who created the human being. If we can accept this distinction, it seems to be splitting high hairs at first sight, but it's really deeper, it isn't. Then we'll say, 
there is no real difference between creationism and the traditional sense and and evolutionism because this is not a random universe this is not where anything could have happened it just happened to have happened this way it's very unlikely that a universe like this should arise it's a miraculous universe the term comes also from einstein it's the greatest miracle of the world that it is the way it is that it is coherent so i suggest that let's not get stuck with this whether there is a, sub, a, a transcendent entity that directly created the human being or whether there's a transcendent entity which cannot be a chance it cannot be uh, it's needed because to explain how this non-random universe could have come about how that transcendent entity created this universe a universe that seeks love oneness belongingness structure integrity that's the nature of our universe and that's a miraculous universe so i i submit to you that we can talk about the traditional concept talk about the scientific concept if we accept that the the, the the deeper spiritual power in this universe in this world is the world itself the creation of the world as it is the laws of nature which are such that they bring together belongingness structure evolution onto higher and higher levels then i think we can come together and shake hands yes indeed we are true brothers we are children of the universe so thank you just just some thoughts that occurred to me as we were talking rabbi raskin well, i i i agree with the professor that the world was definitely not created by chance and there was a creator I was not there exactly when it happened. So I cannot tell you exactly if two molecules, you know, hit against each other and smashed against each other and made a big bang or it was done in another way. You know, there's extrapolations, interpolation. There are many ways of coming to the same conclusion. It could be 10 minus one, or it could be eight plus one and, and et cetera, et cetera. So there are millions and millions of different equations of how creation could have come about. And I don't think that's important. I agree with you. Um, I think the most important thing is that we do believe that there's a purpose to creation and that, that we believe that we have to be united and, and respectful of each other. That to me is more important than how the world came ex nihilo how it came about, et cetera, et cetera. So I am definitely on that page with you. And I tell that to my congregants all the time. Don't think it's only a, a Jewish and a non-Jewish question. Amongst Jews themselves, you have many, many Jewish people that have that question. I deal with it all the time. And I tell them, it doesn't really matter what you think. As long as we can agree that we have a mission, we have a purpose. And God gave us a mission, a Torah, a description of how we have to live our lives then these are details. You want to believe you came from apes? Believe you came from apes. I don't want to believe that way. That's, that's only a philosophical difference. And, and in truth, I wasn't there. So I don't know what happened. Um, but, but scientifically, there are, th there are different ways of how we could look at creation. And I don't have a problem. Any way you take, any, any approach you want is fine with me. Erwin, would you like Just to reflect? Say 17.8 billion years ago, the latest evidence shows that the laws of nature that created the universe have already been effective, had already been there. 
17.8 billion years ago, the world has already been created. You can ask the question, created by what? Created by whom? The question, the answer is, doesn't matter. What matters is that the world as a non-random entity has already been created in such a way <clears throat> that we human beings exist and that our existence, excuse me, <coughs> been created in such a way that we exist and our existence is purposive, uh, harbors a mission, a mission to contribute to the unfolding of the universe, which is a miraculous universe created to be self-creative. That, I think, is the key. Thank you for this in inspiring and important discussion. Thank you, Erwin. I would like to come back to uh, Rabbi Raskin. Can you share a bit more about how Judaism shapes both your personal life and your work in the world? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your daily routine, if you have any. I'm sure our audience is very interested in that. Well, again, I, I uh, thank you for the opportunity to be able to share some of the ideas of Judaism. And again, with such a receptive and intellectual and, and brilliant um, audience of people, um, again, it's truly an honor to be here. Um, to, re to respond to your question, there is a there is a teaching in, in Judaism that which means in everything that I do, I come to know God. In other words, it's not only like the belief that when I go to the synagogue or if you go to the church or the mosque, at that moment, now you're spiritual. At that moment, now you're holy. The belief in Judaism is that everything that we do, we can make holy. And everything we do, we need to be aligned with God in that action. So even when I do business, I'm buying and selling, I need to ask myself, this action, will this action bring me closer to God or will bring me further from God? As was mentioned earlier, that, that we need to have a world of ethics and values. When it comes to business, it's not about making money. That's not the ultimate purpose of business. Yes, we need money to support our family, but business needs to be conducted in an ethical manner. In other words, it has to be done in a godly fashion. So everything we do, as a Jew and a religious Jew, we try to do within the realm of, of God and, 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 and what we call the Torah, which is the book of law. So even when we eat and we sleep and we have intimacy, it's all based on laws. By doing so, it refines and elevates our actions. As we mentioned earlier, that, that even though we were created by God or we created in this world and we're part of nature, but the human being is a very different type of an animal. We're a homo sapien. What does that mean? We have intellect. But more than that, the Torah tells us that not only do we have intellect, but we have the power to make everything holy and divine. And that's really what Judaism is about. So in the morning when I get up, the first thing I do is I praise God and thank you for returning my soul. Before I get out of bed, I wash my hands in a spiritual way because we say when you go to sleep, there's a power of impurity that, rest, rest, that overtakes your body. When you get up in the morning, it leaves your body, remains only on your fingertips, and therefore we do a ritual washing. Then I pray. After we pray, we eat breakfast. But when we eat breakfast, the food is a certain type of food. I don't just take any random food. It has to be kosher food. Before I eat, I make a blessing. 
And by the way, this idea of making a blessing before you eat, I know many other religions have this as well, like making grace, etc., etc. But it's it's a I, I tell my 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 students that this is actually a very logical concept. Because if I walk into someone's house, even though they invited me, I can't simply take the apple off the table just because you invited me into your home. It's your apple. I have to say, sir, can I have an apple? And the same is true. All the food in the world belongs to the creator. So I acknowledge that before I eat. But it's more than that. When I make a blessing on the food, I, I actually elevate, according to Kabbalah, sparks that are in the food. And when we eat that food, in other words, and we use that energy to now do a favor for another person, we use that energy to, to, to work, we use that energy to teach, we use that energy to, to, to make art. So now that food is being elevated. Yes, animals eat and animals have intimacy. When a human eats and when a human has intimacy, we have a higher purpose. We're using that food, not simply because we're hungry and now we want to feel satisfied and great and elevated, but we eat that food so that we have energy to be able to continue on and make the world into a, a more ethical place. The same is true with intimacy. It's not only about physical pleasure. It's about having children. It's about, it's about bringing pleasure to another person. So everything we do has its laws. And that's why in Judaism, it generally, uh, if a woman, for example, has, has a period, there's a separation between husband and wife for two weeks. Because we say God is not only in the synagogue, God's also in the bedroom. In other words, everything we do is aligned with, with laws. Now, there's also a tremendous deep concept behind it, and that's absence makes the heart grow fonder. If, if you have everything you want that all the time, don't appreciate it. The moment there's a separation, now there's a, there's a certain desire to become once again reunited. Besides that, I put in every day at least two hours a day between study and prayer, sometimes four or five hours a day. Um, just like you need food for your body, you need food for your soul. And this is true for all human beings. We have to use our intellect. If we don't study every day and we don't read and we don't learn new things and especially to learn spiritual things like, like the Bible, then then. We are only nurturing the physical part of our body, the animal part of our body, but we're not nurturing the spiritual part of our body. So according to the Zohar, there's a body and a soul, and they have to be respected independently, even though they come together and they complement each other. So we have to do the spiritual part, and we have to do the physical part. And this is a, a universal concept that, that, that all religions and all people have to do, even if they don't have a religion, and that is not only to eat and drink and work, but there's also time of spirituality, which is giving and sharing with other people, volunteering to the community for those who are who are less less fortunate, homebound, to bring them food, to give them warmth and, and words of kindness and inspiration and charity, to give to give tzedakah. Some give five percent in Judaism, it's ten percent to twenty percent, etc. etc. So this is this is what, what Judaism is about. It's not only once a week going to, to the church or the synagogue and, and praying, and then the rest of the week doing what you want. But really, it's, it's living your life 24-7. Everything you do and ask yourself, is this the right thing? Having a consciousness in all of your actions. And again, this is something which is really a teaching which is universal for all, all nations and all people.
That is very true. Uh, Fred, would you please reflect on what Rabbi Raskin mentioned? When I'm listening to the rabbi, um, I recall my own tradition of uh, of Chinese tradition, and then also my learning about science. It is very true. The form informed its essence, and its essence informed the form. Now we are mind, body, spirit, being, but we are driven by the body because of our animal nature, because of our desire, because of our receptors that receive information. And therefore, we're running in the body, mind, spirit algorithm. And so we need to harness the body so that it is a spirit, mind, body algorithm. And therefore, in Buddhist perception, uh, percepts, we have to refrain to do certain things. And there, in the Taoist, there's a practice of certain way of living according to the rhythm of the universe. And that all of them in Chinese culture is most important, is change the algorithm of following the evolutionary energy of, uh, of uh, Tao, which I interpret it, it is the Holy Spirit. We need to be constantly connected. And we cannot be connected and let the Holy Spirit guide us if we do not surrender the Holy Spirit and if we don't keep our body in check in the way we live. And then when we do rituals at what the rabbis say, it is the form informing the no form. And actually we can live in this material world in a spiritual way where the spiritual guide us. And there are different practices. And I see the similarity of those practices of restrain um, of changing the algorithm to follow what we call the wuji or the consciousness net or God. I see great similarity in the practice as well uh, in all the tradition. Again, I have to emphasize the language is something we have to unite so we can have the shared experience. I realize humanity uh, is creating the language based on shared experience. So we need to create a language of shared experience from all tradition, so we unite us so that can move to become one. That we honor just like nature of diversity, and yet everything follow the law of nature and have synchronicity. And that is the law of nature. That is the Holy Spirit. That is the Tao at work. In fact, when you surrender and not to question, to understand a deep connection with that, that our life will eventually be well for all, that we will reach the eye to we to do what humanity has always been doing. And this is an era for globalized reality, of globalized challenge. And so I hear with great connectivity with Rabbi saying of the similarity of a spiritual life, whether it's Buddhist or it's Jewish, whether it's Taoist, they follow 
the same concept. But because our cultural gap in different region and different environment that we live in, we have slightly different practice. And But if you look at the essence of the practice, you'll find that we have the same goal. And in fact, it is a similar practice to reach the goal. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. That was beautiful. Um, I think it's time to soon close our discussion. So I would like first to ask uh, Rabbi Raskin for some concluding words and then Irwin. And after that, or maybe we should start with Irwin, because I would like to ask Rabbi Raskin if it would be possible to end this episode with a blessing or a prayer from you, something that the audience would be able to receive and take with them. Is this possible? Sure, sure. Yeah, we can do that. Okay, so let's go with some words uh, from Irwin, and then we're going to get back to Rabbi Raskin. Irwin? Fog beads from me to hold up our proceedings and the, and the blessing. We've already addressed the major questions. I think as deeply spiritual people, regardless of which tradition we follow, we are brothers and sisters and we think alike. As Fred said, the, what counts is the form, forming the formless and creating something new for out of it. This is a miraculous universe. We are miraculous beings. And it's time that we realize that and we act up to what we truly are. So thank you for this conversation. And I look forward to Rabbi's blessing. Thank you. <clears throat> so before I give the blessing, we always give a blessing to the blessing, introduction to the introduction. My, my grandfather, a blessed memory, my, my, my father's father once asked for a blessing from Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he said, when a person asks for a blessing, he must know that a blessing is compared to rain. You first must plow and then sow. And after that, the blessing will bring rain and fruit. So we need to prepare for the blessing. We have to be open for the blessing and believe in the blessing. And once that happens, then God will make it rain and we will be able to produce and bring about tremendous blessing and success. So let me give you the blessing that the priests, the Kohanim would give to, to the people in Israel and the Holy Temple. It goes like this. I'll first read it in Hebrew, then translate it into the English. The Lord bless you and guard you. The Lord make his countenance shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you and grant you peace. Amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi Raskin. That, that was beautiful. And I'm sure our audience is going to enjoy it and treasure it very much. It's a very uh, compelling note to conclude on. I am Nora Cesar with our hosts, Erwin Laszlo and Fred Zhao, thanking today's very special guest, 
Rabbi Aaron Raskin and our worldwide audience, as well as our wonderful production team, which I'm happy to be a part of, led by Kenichi Sugihara, Tai Suki, and those many others at Octave Institute and Laszlo Institute. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, this is the place to tune in. We invite you to join us for more episodes of Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast, as well as to give the book Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing as a gift to yourself or for a loved one. It is a true companion for these challenging times. The bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us. So remember, this time when building that new paradigm for humankind, let's include humankindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. Thank you for listening. Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research, the Octave Institute, and Select Books Publishers. Our theme music is Chimera by Biba Dupont. For more information about Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, please visit our website at www.thelasloinstitute.com. If you enjoy our program, please remember to subscribe to us on your podcast service. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating to help other listeners learn about our show. See you next time.